Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A nation recoils in horror, and the markets look the other way on hopes of a brighter tomorrow. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it did. On top of a pandemic and a cratering economy, we faced a week of demonstrations and riots as people took to the streets to protest the brutal killing of a black man in Minneapolis. And President Trump, he said he would send in federal troops to quell the disturbances. We asked Columbia economist Jeffrey Sachs about the causes of this chronic inequality and what could be done about it. I think digitization has played a big role in both raising overall output, but shifting it to a smaller and smaller part of society. And uh, the COVID epidemic is probably uh, going to result in a dramatic increased concentration of wealth. Think about it. Uh, Jeffrey Bezos, uh, owner of Amazon, uh, founder of Amazon, uh, has increased his wealth uh, by an estimated $35 billion since the start of this year at a time that we have mass unemployment. Uh, We have uh, the greatest unemployment, uh, the largest uh, loss of jobs since the Great Depression, rivaling the Great Depression. And yet uh, the stock market is up and uh, some of the uh, big tech uh, uh, titans uh, are uh, booming in their wealth. So what's happening, I think, is that we're seeing this dramatic wiping out of a large part of our economy, the brick and mortar sector. A huge amount is shifting online 
And that is part of this digital trend that already has been leading to the concentration of income and wealth. When the dust settles, I'm afraid we're going to probably have the greatest increase of inequality that we've ever had in a short period of time. Which is saying a good deal, because going into this, before the pandemic, we were not in great shape on inequality. It was growing to a substantial degree. There are remarkable statistics I know you've seen that, for example, back in 2016, 2017, the net worth of the, of the median African-American family was 10 percent that of the median white family. So we had a problem going in. And then, as you point out, if you look at the COVID loss of jobs, it was greatly disproportionate on Hispanics and on blacks. What can we do to remedy that at this point? Because what we're seeing right now, I think, is certainly about police brutality, but it's about much more. It's probably the case that when the calculations are made carefully, that the richest 20 Americans or so, all white, I I believe to be the case, uh, have more net worth than all the financial wealth uh, of the African-American 40 million people in American society. Uh, don't, uh, I don't guarantee the number. I say this has to be looked at, but these are the relative uh, orders of magnitude that we're talking about. Uh, the top billionaires, if you take the top 20, 30, have uh, well over a trillion dollars of uh, net worth. Now, that's something like the financial wealth uh, in the African-American community of 40 million people. It's stunning what is happening in terms of the shocking unbelievable, unprecedented wealth at the very, very top. Uh, Bezos uh, himself with $150 billion of net worth, something we cannot get our heads around. Uh, And then uh, people losing jobs by the tens of millions with absolutely a disproportionate burden being felt by minority communities. This is desperate. What do we have to do about it? We have to become a decent society where Everybody has access to health care. Everybody has access to education. Uh, You don't have a generation of students with one and a half trillion dollars of debt now completely unpayable because the prospects have worsened dramatically, but it was unpayable beforehand. And that requires uh, companies like Amazon to pay some taxes, not to ask for tax breaks from around the country, but to pay their taxes. It requires the richest people to pay taxes. It requires, in my view, a tax on wealth, which is so concentrated right now that we're going to wake up. In fact, we're not even waking up. We know it. We see it. We're awake right now that the budget deficit will be some 20 percent of GDP, perhaps. And then we're going to be told by the conservatives representing uh, the voices of the richest people. Oh, we can't do any more. We're, we're going to have to cut uh, benefits to the poor because of the large budget deficit. So it's an extraordinary time by any standard, David. Uh, and the concentration of wealth, uh, not a deliberate part of this uh, epidemic, but uh, it seems to be the fallout of the epidemic is extraordinary. One more point I would add on this. Uh, The Fed has, of course, uh, issued uh, trillions of dollars of new credits. But the way our system works, it's not credits for a broad society. It's credits that go through the already large concentrations of wealth and allow them to buy up even more of the assets on a fire sale basis. 
So easy Fed credits after 2008 was part of the increased concentration of wealth after 2008. Now we're seeing it again in 2020 that uh, what the Fed's doing to keep the economy from collapsing is also going to have an effect on increasing the already almost unimaginable inequality of wealth. That was Professor Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia. Coming up, we hear from the chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, about how the markets are working despite all the bad news and the volatility. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The markets have been put through their paces this year so far, from a pandemic to an economic collapse to civil unrest. But through it all, the man responsible for overseeing those markets, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton, says that they have held up well. The bedrock of our system is good financial information. Um, and this, this asymmetry, you can call it an on-level playing field, with Chinese-listed companies versus other companies um, from non-U.S. jurisdictions listed, uh, has gone on for too long. And first step, let's make sure investors understand it. Second step, and the administration is now looking at this. Uh, Senator Kennedy and Van Hollen have a bill that has a, a very sensible approach to this, which is give people time to, to level that asymmetric uh, or unlevel playing field. Uh, now we know about it. Now we got to figure out what we're going to do about it. Well, is disclosure enough in this situation as a practical matter? I mean, there, there are now proposals up on the Hill, as you know, the Senate has passed. It would say if a company, I think if the rule is if you don't allow access to the audit papers for three consecutive years, you get delisted. Do you need that kind of power? Well, first step, disclosure. But I, but I do think that we need to consider whether more to level the playing field. And, and I, I think the, the bill you mentioned, the, the Kennedy Van Hollen bill, it's a very sensible way to look at this if you're going to do more because it gives people a period of time uh, to level the playing field before you would take any action. Uh, you know, I'm not a guy who wants to take like, precipitous, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head with the hammer tomorrow. But, you know, I, I like the way they've approached it in that there's a period of time to come into compliance. And if you don't, then it's time to um, take take measures beyond just disclosure. Jay, from you having watched this over some period of time, uh, and I know you don't want to name any individual companies, so I won't name any individual companies. But is it across the board with Chinese publicly traded companies, or is it more a problem with some of the smaller or maybe up-and-coming ones as opposed to some of the really big mega-cap companies that we all know the names of that have been publicly traded for a while? Well, well, David, you, you, you bring up a good question. Uh, a point that applies in every market. Uh, financial controls, audit procedures, and the like, they're different for larger companies than they are for smaller companies. And uh, there are a lot of smaller companies uh, from that have operations in China that are listed on our markets. And investors might look at those differently from the multi-caps or, or from state-owned enterprises. And uh, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert on international investing, but I, but I do know enough to know that you shouldn't look at a particular jurisdiction in a monolithic way. Uh, you should you should look at that um, as to whether you're looking at a smaller company, uh, a, a, an international company that derives a lot of its revenues from outside of that jurisdiction, or a state-owned enterprises which has its own risks and reward profiles. Jay, um, do you talk with your counterparts who are security regulators in 
Beijing in China. I mean, there have been times when the Chinese government has said, we really want to try to coordinate, we want to harmonize, we want to open up our markets, our securities markets. Is there any prospect of actually some of that harmonization coming about? Uh, look, we do talk. Um, I talk to my, my counterparts around the world. Um, there's nothing that I have uh, said to you that I that I haven't said to them, and that this is a problem that uh, I believe needs to be addressed. Um, and uh, I hope it can be. Are you hopeful? Do you think it will My be? I'm, look, I'm an optimistic guy, but I'm but I'm optimistic because I I know that at some point, uh, you know, hope is not a strategy. You got you got to do other things as well. So you said the legislation is pending. It's been passed in the Senate. Uh, is sense of, I think you said sensible way of approaching it. Is it doable? Is it something that as you look at it, the SEC could enforce without too much difficulty? Oh, 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 yes. No, it's a, it's a, it's a sensible piece of legislation, and it, and it uh, captures the issue in a way. Look, I, I, I try very hard not to, uh, to, to tell Congress what to do. It's the other way around. They tell me what to do. Um, but this is a, this is a very sensible way to approach a problem that's been around for a while. Uh, what about some of the initiatives you, you were working on before the pandemic came up? Talk about like revi revisions to proxy rules. Do those continue apace or do you have to put those to one side? No, we, we have not put our policy making agenda to the side. Um, we, are, we are a very, when you talk about organizations um, being affected in different ways by uh, the operational constraints of social distancing and um, uh, the health and safety uh, structures that we live by. We're a very lucky organization. We're, we're, we can operate fairly effectively um, in a remote uh, capacity, and we've been doing so. Uh, and look, the, the, the women and men in those policymaking divisions, uh, they're committed to improving our markets and modernizing our markets. I'm not going to put that on hold unless I have to. And so, for example, the proxy rules, where do they stand now? Uh, we're, we're in. They're on our. They're on our agenda to be finished in this fiscal year, and I expect to uh, have them finished in this fiscal year. I, 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 I'm so pleased with the rigor that our staff has applied uh, to all the comments we've received, and I think we're on schedule to finish them uh, during this fiscal year. Um, uh, what That's September people don't know about the SEC fiscal year. So, by 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 the end of this uh, by the end of this period. And how do you feel about bringing people back to work at the SEC? I think you've said at least until July 15. Uh, do you think that that's realistic? Well, David, I, I do think it's, um, it is realistic because we are able to function. I mean, every organization is different. And I'm not making choices for other organizations, but this organization functions very well in a virtual environment. Uh, there are a number of functions that we have that would improve um, with people on site. There are some functions where you do need um, people outside. Look, we live in a we live in a, a country where due process is important, and we have people who um, uh, we're bringing actions against. And if they want the the benefit of being interviewed face to face or being uh, able to in as virtual a face to face environment as possible, we need to provide that to them. We're, we're you know we believe in due process, so those types of things um, we have to do. But by and large, we can operate very effectively remotely. And what I want to do is, as as things get back to normal, and I hope they do, I hope they do, bring bring people back in those areas that are most acutely affected by remote working, and then go from there. 
um, keeping health and safety you know, front of mind at all times. So uh, I have the luxury of that, given the way we work. I know others, others don't, um, but that's how I'm looking at it here. That was SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Coming up, we ask Washington veteran, former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta, what the government needs to do to address a pandemic, a steep economic downturn, and civil unrest coming all at the same time. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. For the first time in history, the United States faces a pandemic, an economic downturn and civil unrest all at the same time. Leon Panetta faced his share of crises when he served in government, including as chief of staff to President Clinton when Jesse Jackson was giving those remarks on the mall. He went on to serve as the director of the CIA and the secretary of defense, and his experience taught him how an administration deals with a series of crises that come all at the same time. Well, I I always found uh, as uh, chief of staff and uh, then later as CIA director and secretary of defense that uh, when facing a a crisis and when facing a series of crises, as we are now, uh, the best approach is to uh, gather the National Security Council together uh, and determine what the best strategy is to deal uh, with each of these crises uh, and to uh, develop uh, options, obviously, to present to the president, but to try to develop uh, at least a common strategy that everybody can support and, and that is in the best interest of the country in terms of dealing with that crisis. So I, I think this is a moment when the president needs to listen to the advice of his most experienced advisors. Uh, That's critically important uh, at a time when you're facing this kind of uh, serious threat to the country. Well, we heard from one senior advisor today in his Secretary of Defense, but it was public. It wasn't behind closed doors. Is there any doubt that the president has the authority, the legal authority to send in federal troops if he so chooses? There is this Insurrection Act. Well, look, uh, I I think it's uh, it's clear that the president could uh, assert uh, the Insurrection Act, but Again, uh, this country has recognized that uh, the purpose of our military is to be trained to confront foreign adversaries uh, in combat, uh, not to be used for riot control or law enforcement. The Posse uh, Comitatus Act was passed in the 1800s 
for the purpose of making clear that the U.S. military ought not to take the place of, uh, of law enforcement. And so for that reason, uh, I commend Secretary, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Esper, for taking the position that he took because uh, military leaders uh, almost in unison uh, do not believe that our military ought to be used uh, to, uh, to fight our own people. It ought to be used to fight foreign enemies. Are federal troops even trained to do this? I mean, to, to pick up on your point, uh, are they trained to deal with crowd control and things like that? Because we have, sadly, in our history, seen instances where some military were brought in who were not properly trained, and we had some tragic results, su such as Kent State. You know the military well. Are the federal troops, are some of the federal troops, trained to really be effective in this situation? Is this the best tool in the toolkit? I don't believe it is, because uh, what, why we train our military is to engage in combat with a foreign adversary. That's what they're trained to do. Uh, they're not trained on riot control. They're not trained on crowd control. They're not trained on law enforcement. At the same time, we have a difficult problem here that I'm, no, I'm sure you appreciate, which is we have, I think, the vast majority of protesters who are peaceful, are exercising their First Amendment rights to petition for redress of grievances, but there are clearly some bad actors in some of these demonstrations who are prone to violence and trying to instigate something. Uh, but put aside the federal military as a tool, what is the best way for the government, the federal government, the state government, to sort those two things out so we maintain law and order, we protect people and property, but we also preserve the rights of those who want to peacefully protest that horrific instance out in Minneapolis? Well, I, I think it would be preferable rather than the president uh, asserting that somehow he'll take control of the situation if others don't. I think the president ought to be offering law enforcement assistance uh, to states and local communities so that they can, in fact, determine whether or not there are criminal elements that are trying to take advantage of these protests. That's a law enforcement issue. That's an FBI issue. Uh, that's an intelligence issue. Uh, frankly, uh, the, the federal government gets good intelligence on those that are trying to uh, conduct uh, those kinds of criminal activities. And so that ought to be shared with, uh, with state and local law enforcement so that they can play the primary role in trying to maintain order in their communities and in their states. Mr. Secretary, what could we as a country learn from the military on the subject of race? Put aside their active involvement in any uh, peacekeeping missions, but, but the, the U.S. military was there ahead of a lot of the rest of the, of the society. Going back to the days of Harry S. Truman when he was president and integrating the military, you have a much more integrated, I think, military than most companies do across the country. What have you learned from that? What could you teach, teach society? Because goodness knows it appears we need to learn some things fast. I think the military is a is a good example for the rest of the country in terms of uh, allowing, uh, allowing minorities, allowing others to be able to serve their country uh, and to uh, be part of a unit working together to accomplish a common mission. Uh, my experience is that, uh, you know, whether you're, whether you're black or whether you're brown or whether you're a woman, uh, that you should have the opportunity to serve this country. That was former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. 
We wrap up our week with Harvard's Larry Summers, who, of course, was Secretary of the Treasury and is our very own special contributor here on Wall Street Week. So, Larry, this has been a tumultuous week, I think it's fair to say. Every day we've seen the video of demonstrations and, yes, riots and, yes, looting across the country in response to that tragic instance in Minneapolis. At the same time, the equity markets just kept climbing higher and higher and higher. Why don't the markets pay any attention to the evening news? Look, uh, it's as extraordinary a week as I've ever uh, seen. Someone said that we're living through the 1918 pandemic, the 1929 economic collapse, the 1968 civil unrest across America, and the Andrew Jackson presidency all at once. Uh, I haven't seen uh, anything like it. And before we talk about markets, I think we have to acknowledge that uh, the racial injustice that has been pointed up uh, by the dramatic events now almost two weeks uh, old is something that our country's been wrestling with for a long time and is going to be wrestling with for a very long uh time uh, to come. Uh, what happened on the streets of Minneapolis just can't keep uh, happening. And there's just been a huge outpouring of anger and upset. And a critical question for our democracy is going to be whether all of that anguish and anger is channeled constructively uh, into positive change or doesn't bring about that kind of progress, in which case the cleavages in our society are only going uh, to get worse. The market really doesn't seem like a very big thing relative to uh, all of that. Uh, the market's job is to make a judgment about the profits that companies uh, will earn. And in approximate sense, as cosmically important as these events are, they probably don't change um, what those earnings are going to be over some interval. But I would caution that over long time periods, this kind of thing makes a very big difference. If you think back, uh, the country almost unraveled in uh, the late 1960s behind, be, because of cleavages associated with the Vietnam War, because of strife over uh, issues of racial justice. And not immediately, you know, if you look at what happened to the level of stock prices relative to other prices, the real S&P uh, 500, it had its worst long decade um, in the last six or seven uh, decades in the decade that followed what happened in 1968. You saw a huge drop into 1974-5 uh, with the Wall Street, Watergate uh, episode, the oil shocks, all of that. And then you saw a further uh, very steep uh decline uh, into uh, 1982. And so how America deals with all of this is going to be 
profoundly important, I believe, for America's health. And I don't think America's corporations can be healthy if America is not um, healthy. And I think enlightened business leaders have recognized that. And you've seen many, many CEOs uh, making that point uh, this week. Uh, so the markets are optimistic. And I hope the markets are right in their optimism about COVID. I hope the markets are right in their optimism about the society uh, coming together. Um, I'm not sure they are uh, right. It seems to me there's a lot of optimism right now. And I worry that people who were very nervous two months ago are fearful of missing out. And it's that kind of FOMO that may be driving a fair amount of uh, this uh, market strength. You know, if you think about almost all financial error, David, it comes from people doing today what they wish they had done yesterday. And everybody who is too scared to buy at the end of March regrets it. And there are a lot of people who think they're rectifying that error by buying now. And maybe they'll turn out to be right. But I'm not sure that's something uh, that we can entirely uh, count on. I think we've got a long way to go with respect to COVID and an even longer way to go with respect to having a unified and in a profound sense uh, functional society living to its potential. So, Larry, if you want to talk about people being right and wrong, take a look at the people who were estimating the jobs numbers this week. They were wildly wrong by 10 million jobs. I mean, they thought they were going to lose 7.5 million in the United States. We actually gained 2.5 million. What do you make of that? How could that have happened? What does that tell us about where we're headed? Look, it should give us, all of us who are involved in economic forecasting, a very great sense of uh, humility. And obviously it's a welcome development for 10 million American uh, families and for America more generally. But I think it would be a mistake to overinterpret. We knew that the whole country was locked down in mid-April, late April, or even early May in a way that was not going to be sustained. And so we knew that there was going to be a bounce back. We knew that uh, businesses that employ millions of people had received grants basically, but in order for those grants to be grants without an obligation to pay back, they had to rehire a large number of employees. So when I thought about these uh, numbers, as I did through the day, I asked myself, how much of this changed my view about where the economy would be at the end of the year? And how much of this, what represented an earlier bounce back from the floor than most people had expected? And I think it's more earlier bounce than it is stronger and bigger uh, bounce. So 
it's certainly good news. But when the president starts talking about how it's going to be faster than a V and the economy is going to be a rocket ship and all of that, maybe no one no one can know uh, for uh, sure. But the fundamental constraints on the economy, uh, some sectors aren't going to be able to come back as long as COVID is pervasive. There's a risk of a second wave of COVID. There's substantial financial overexposure and leverage, and especially in the real estate sector where tenants aren't paying and landlords aren't in positions to pay mortgages, and that's putting strain on the financial system. Those problems aren't resolved, and they're not really closer to being resolved because we got a good employment report. So, yes, faster bounce, but... I'm not sure the ultimate uh, place we get is going to be very different. And finally, Larry, we need to spend one minute here at the end to connect those two points up, which is the striking thing to me of these numbers was the unemployment for black Americans did, actually went up as it went down for both whites and Hispanics. What causes that? It's the old adage, uh, David, I, I suspect uh, last hired, first fired. And in this case, it's first fired, last hired, and that's what we're and uh, that's what we're seeing. I don't know whether we can reach a firm interpretation on the basis of one month's numbers, but uh, God knows um, it's not right um, that African Americans are doing as much delivering as they're doing, and as little being delivered to as is uh, taking place. And that's got something to do with uh, the patterns uh, that uh, we are uh, that we are that we are seeing. And we're going to need to do something about that. And we're going to need to address uh, these questions of inclusion if we're going to have the kind of economy that we all want. Yeah, and of all the weeks for that to happen, this was not the one to have it happen. It's so true, Larry. There are larger issues here that we're going to have to come back and address again and again. Many thanks to our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, former Secretary of the Treasury. This has been another edition of Wall Street Week. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.